Hello, everyone, and welcome back after a very, very long pause. You're listening to the Man Base podcast, and today I have a very distinguished guest with me that I'm going to introduce in a moment. I hope you all had a nice little break and are ready for the summer holidays to come up and you're going to have a nice time. So without further ado, uh, my guest today is a distinguished writer, uh, Mrs., uh, Mrs. or should I say Dr. Claire Blanchard. Uh, would you like to introduce yourself to our listeners, please? Yes, hello. Um, it's a pleasure to be here. Uh, yes, I'm Claire Blanchard and I'm an author of crime fiction and urban fantasy. Brilliant. Uh, so could you t uh, elaborate a little bit more about what kind of what uh, what books you're working on at the moment or what books you already have on the market for instance oh yes thank you well um, I'm published by Fahrenheit Press and my books are also available on Amazon and all uh, ebook platforms really all major ones um, and <clears throat> the first book that I had formally published um, is called The Tainted Vintage, which is a, a crime novel set in the Czech Republic. And uh, it's a murder mystery. And it's about the, the mayor of a small market town in a wine growing area. And uh, he's found murdered in his wine cellar. So that was my first effort. And I have another one um, due to come out uh, with Fahrenheit, I think, in the next few months or so. And that one is called The Russian Dolls, uh, which is also set partly in the Czech Republic as well as in Spain and elsewhere. Um, and that takes us more, it, well, it's also a murder mystery, but it, it takes us also into the realm of um, international art theft uh, and that kind of thing. Um, in addition to that, uh, what I'm working on at the moment is a new series called uh, the Wizards series, and it's in the realm of urban fantasy. Um, although that might seem quite a big departure from um, crime fiction, uh, there is a thread running through all my books uh, because I love to write uh, books with a historical background that's quite strong and quite specific to the characters that I'm developing. And I do believe that the historical era that we that we grew up in and that we live in it has a huge effect on our characters and on our life paths. So that's really me as a writer, I think. Sounds fascinating. The one thing I find particularly interesting is that uh, there's this very uh, prevalent uh, Slavic thing running through all of your books. Uh, for instance, regarding your... Uh, your murder mysteries, uh, why Czech Republic of all places as a, as a setting? Um, well, uh, although I'm British, as you could probably hear from my accent, um, I, I am married to a Czech and, um, and I've, uh, my home or my permanent home is in the Czech Republic and has been really on and off since the mid 80s. Uh, so I've lived through some fairly spectacular historical changes in that country. Uh, myself and um, and I also love the country very much and um, I've been fascinated by the history and culture of the Czech Republic ever since I started living there and um, it's taken deep root and I think also perhaps for readers who don't know the region very well it adds a bit of interest it's a very beautiful country it has lots of beautiful architecture and um, creative arts so I think it's it's perhaps a slightly unusual backdrop uh, for, for many readers, and I hope they find that a bit interesting as well. Well, I'm, uh, I'm sure they will. I found it very interesting uh, myself. Uh, now, obviously, this being a podcast focusing on, shall we say, young men's mental health and uh, finding meaning in your life. Yes. Uh, <clears throat> There is a theme running through your books uh, that relates to that. Would you maybe like to elaborate on that a little bit? Um, yes, I think but coming from the personal perspective, um, I've spent um, most of my adult life in some form of teaching, uh, whether it was uh, in a school or privately, and uh, also in boarding schools. 
And uh, in the course of my working life, I became very interested in mental health generally among young people and, uh, and specifically young men, although obviously not exclusively. And um, I think that um, we live in an, in an era where um, certainly in the Western world, um, but not only there, the, uh, the, the mental health issues have become, um, come to the forefront really of professional concerns. And I feel that our culture um, is in a crisis really about gender identity and about the relationship between gender and um, mental well-being. Um, and, and I think um, it comes out in my writing with my characters, um, in particular, I think the books that I'm working on at the moment, um, but it's something that has, has occupied my mind really ever since I started writing. That, that makes a lot of sense. Uh, I do, I, I agree uh, that there is a definite theme running through society today, especially in the Western world, that relates to uh, gender identity and gender crisis uh, of some sort, which, uh, which seems counterintuitive when you bear in mind the fact that it's being discussed now more than ever. Do, uh, what, what do you think is the relationship between the amount this topic is being discussed and uh, on the one hand and on the other the huge problems that stem from the, uh, the, the crisis as such? Um, it's a very interesting question and it's something that I am still thinking quite hard about myself. Um, I think that <clears throat> if I can sort of just do a little foray into, into the history. Um, Please in, do. In um, the history of feminism, for example, uh, started out with, uh, uh, with women wanting to reclaim for women um, some of the territory that they felt had been usurped by men. So there are things such as the, uh, the right to vote, the right to own property, the right to earn a living, the right to an education, which women, let's say, starting from the end of the 19th and beginning of the 20th century, started to actively campaign for and with some success. And I think that those are areas of, of human activity that belong to all grown-up adults, or all adults, shall we say, of any gender. And, um, and I think that that was, a, that was something that was necessary, and it's something that has happened and hopefully is now built into our culture, although other cultures are still um, struggling with that to some extent. Um, but I think that what then happened is that is that the is that the focus on being a responsible adult and and having the rights and responsibilities of a, of a responsible adult somehow got shifted into into a a discussion about rights only and not responsibilities. So that, I think there's that going on, and I also think that there was a, there's been a fragmentation of identities as such, which have kind of lost sight of the original core issues. And, uh, and I think another thing that's going on in our culture is that we, we're not really very good at looking at the relationship between, between um, strength and vulnerability. And I think we, we in our culture, you probably you can hear that I'm a bit of a social scientist there in the background. Absolutely. Uh, <clears throat> yeah, uh, because that was my original training. Uh, but I think that uh, vulnerability on a human level is something that we find difficult to admit and difficult to talk about. And therefore, we don't really get to grips with the relationship between our vulnerability and our strength, because the two are connected. And specifically with regard to feminism, I think that issues to do with, let's say, pregnancy, childbirth, the fact that when you're a woman, uh, there are certain nurturing concerns that are not specific to men, 
in the same way. Those are issues which have tended to be treated by mainstream feminism recently as a sort of downside to being a woman um, because they kind of detract from the things that women can do that men can do. Could you, sorry to interrupt mm. you, could you elaborate a little bit more on what specifically this downside is? Well, um, I think that quite often that there, that there, there is a, um, let's say for example, if I give an example from my own personal experience, during my pregnancy, I was uh, hospitalized and uh, so I was from a, from a sort of earning point of view out of action although I did do some work on online even then um, and that was it, 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 that can be construed as oh being a woman is a disadvantage or there there are vulnerabilities to being a woman and uh, so you are um, there's, there's almost a sense that, it, although it's never put in those words, that being a woman means that you're in some sense automatically disadvantaged or more vulnerable. And that is a problem. You see, uh, uh, again, to interrupt you, what I find fascinating and quite worrying is that seems, this seems to be an implicit idea specifically within the more militant feminist uh, groups. Uh, rather mm. than a general society, like the, the implicit idea that somehow women are less when they obviously are not. Yes, I think, I, I, I do think that in certain militant uh, aspects of, of, of the feminist movement, um, there has been a refusal to accept um, what the core issues are, and they're not being examined. And it's almost as if uh, some women actually resent being women. And I find that personally very difficult to relate to because I, I grew up in a household where my father was literally Edwardian. I mean, he was born in 1904 mm -hmm. and he had all the sort of trappings of that era, which is that a gentleman should be a gentleman and a lady should be a lady. Mm -hmm. And yet when it came to me as his daughter, there was never any question of me being, as it were, a second-class boy. I was just me, and I happened to be a girl. Yeah. So there was never an issue with that. And it was only when I got to university that I discovered that I was surrounded by all these women who felt that uh, resentful of older brothers or even younger brothers, or who felt that their fathers had treated them as if they were somehow not as good as a boy and all this kind of stuff. And I think that subliminally, there's still a lot of that going on in the, in the discourse, but it's not being admitted. Yes. And, and I, I think um, perhaps that the, the politicization of these issues is, uh, is overshadowing a, um, a real discourse about what it means to be a woman and also the implications of that for men. Because if you can't acknowledge your vulnerabilities as a human being, regardless of gender, then how can you deal with your own mental well-being? Because we're all vulnerable on some level. And I think these, these are issues that need to be aired and thought about in a much more careful and honest way than they are being doing, that has been happening until now. Uh, based on what you're saying, would it be fair to uh, assume that you're speaking about starting at an individual level before addressing uh, more uh, societal problems? Uh, would that be a right way of describing it? Could it? be, and that, but I think it's both. I think I think this on a, we all have to wrestle with our own demons uh, on an individual level. But I think sometimes uh, we lack the tools for doing that. Mm. Uh, conceptually, especially younger people who are struggling with things that are really quite scary. Um, you know, it could be uh, sexual uh, orientation or it could be depression, it could be anxiety. And, and, there, and I think boys in particular are under an enormous amount of pressure to present this macho image to the world that, you know, I'm tough, I can cope with anything. And, and nobody can cope with anything. Mm. If uh, this is a good moment for me, I think, to jump in, because uh, you mentioned a very uh, interesting thing about these expectations that are being placed on uh, 
boys uh, mm. or young men regarding presenting themselves as these macho people. But at the same time, there also seems to be a very palpable trend of, uh, shall we say, a sort of societal androgyny and to not uh, present yourself as hyper male or hyper female, but present, <coughs> uh, present shall we say, uh, characteristics which are which are representative of both the sexes rather than just the one. <coughs> uh, so there seems to be <coughs> a sort of divide, a schism between what's expected of we are, you know, dealing with a a, a show based on men's mental health. So there yes. seems to be a division between what still seems to be expected maybe from a more historical point of view and uh, what's expected uh, in, in the views of, of, of today's, shall we say, politically progressives uh, as, as, as their labels, sometimes yes. by others and sometimes by themselves. And I think uh, that that creates uh, confusion, if, if nothing else, in the mind of a young man. Uh, would you have any, any, any thoughts on yes, that? Yes, definitely. A confusion and distress, I would, I would say. And in speaking from my own professional experience, working with young people, mm. um, <clears throat> it's often been my experience that young men would, would present uh, rather with physical issues, like a, a health problem, a physical health problem, uh, and then it would only be through developing a position or a, a relationship of trust that they would then open up about uh, emotional distress that they were experiencing or, or some kind of confusion. And um, I, I also felt that young, younger men and teenagers uh, found it easier to talk to a woman about these things than to talk to another guy mm -hmm. uh, in a professional context. I mean, it may yes. be different in a, in a family. Um, and I think that, it, I mean, you can attribute some of that simply to the fact that they see you as a surrogate mum. But I think the point still can be made that, um, that boys in general find it difficult to open up to another guy about their vulnerabilities. Definitely, yeah. Speaking from my own experience <clears throat> uh, as a young guy, I can say that's the case. Uh, that's the thing. There seems to be a... a, a great clash between the, the historical expectations of what it is to be a man on the one hand yes. and the new idea of what a man or who a man uh, should be uh, which changes uh, and develops you could almost say on a daily or weekly basis depending on the uh, political uh, situation regarding you know a progressive look on the world uh mm. so uh w w would you say that uh, that uh, the position between men and women are becoming more uh, especially young men and young men are, be are becoming more polarized yes uh, yes i think i think so i think there's i think there's also a massive tension in evidence in relationships between men and women between the the kind of um almost gender-free expectation this as you say this sort of androgynous sort of identity that, that we we're, we're ex uh, expected to present to the world mm. uh, and, and on the other hand uh, between the the, the almost generic demand on men to appear to be invulnerable and forever tough and um, I think the most obvious way that that finds expression is, is the fact that um, if, a, if a man were, for example, to break down in tears in public, he would feel that he had failed or let himself down mm -hmm. uh, in a way that a woman wouldn't. Yes. And I would, uh, my, I would argue that the, the ability to be true to your emotions and to express your emotions is a, is a fundamental aspect of being a person and 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 your right to be a person and to to deny men that right 
uh, is is in a sense a, a um, shall we say a, a denigration of their status as human beings, yeah. and um, and it's certainly also it's completely untrue that people who show emotion in uh, in in a or express emotion are not strong or are weaker than people who don't show emotion. Very often the opposite is the case, mm. that, that it's people who can express what they feel who are in the strongest position yeah. uh, to, to deal with whatever life brings to them. And um, I mean, the, and the biology would seem to bear this out because women, women traditionally don't bottle up emotion in a way that men do. And, and it may be a factor in the fact that they tend to live longer. Yeah, absolutely possible. Now, there, there are two things that I want to mention, both of which are quite contentious uh, yes. to, to, to mention, again, especially today, politically speaking. Uh, for the first of which is, is the idea that men and, di and women are not qualitatively uh any more or less important significant you know the mm. intrinsic value of a man and a woman that i think obviously yeah. the same it's like an axiomatic truth yeah. but uh what people don't seem to want to uh, hear is that there that there are other differences between ma uh, men and women which which are necessary to to highlight yeah you know uh, men and women especially okay bringing it back to young people uh, coming back to my own experience as a teenager, a teenage boy not that long ago, I know that all of us as guys were utterly restless and basically completely uh, useless in a high school setting because our mind just just wasn't there. Even yeah. the most intelligent yes. of us were just not mentally present, whereas the girls, with all the other things that they had going on, it still had the wherewithal to be conscientious and get good marks and behave properly. Yes, the for the hormone, most part, the I'm generalising, yeah. obviously. No, I understand. Nonetheless, mm -hmm. uh, uh, do you think there's a, a, a way to work around this? I mean, because what it seems to be the trend that people want to not sort of average out this behavior to make it to, to make men and women basically completely completely the same and deny deny the differences that they may need during various times of their upbringing mm. no I, I mean i i i used to joke when i was still teaching that that boys from the age of about 13 to 18 should just be taken out of school and sent into an apprenticeship or mm. to learn a trade or to go and dig help ditches or something yeah <clears throat> because because what boys need at that age is they need a certain amount of sort of disciplined work but they it needs to be physical mm. uh, and um and at that age i think boys respond best to sort of very simple direct instructions yeah and um but i, I mean i'm I, i'm sort of half joking but i think there is a grain of truth in it uh, i think the uh, speaking as a former teacher probably one of the ways round it is to say that there is a there is now especially in today's economy a lifelong learning process so it's not like it was in my grandparents day that if you failed in inverted commas at school uh, in your secondary school let's say or your high school that you were then a write-off and you could never go back and study those yeah. days are gone fortunately mm. And in, and in any case, I think we now have to live with the reality that most of us will will have several professions or ways of earning a living uh, in our lifetimes and, and perhaps several even at once. Yeah. Uh, you know, so we're certainly having all having to be much more flexible. And I think this may, um, you know, I, I, I feel I've sort of spoken quite a lot of gloom and doom about young men uh, today, but <clears throat> I think this may serve their interests rather well mm. that young men young men could um you know come back to education let's say in their 20s or their 30s yeah. or take a job and study in their spare time so I, I don't i think that that sort of more flexible approach to education and lifelong learning will help young men yeah. Yeah. Uh, more than has been the case in the past absolutely 
this is going to be a, a tricky question to answer, but I'm wondering what your thoughts on this are. There is a, a definite trend in society today that for, for men to, for lack of a better way of putting it, to grow up, to stay in the basement, play video games into their late 20s, early, early 30s, uh, get a job where they sort of get by, but they don't really participate in the classic uh lifestyle the way it used to be you know you get it you get into your uh mid late 20s you get yourself a family a steady paying job and uh mm. and on you go that that's definitely not the norm anymore what, what do you think happened that changed that changed that that's very, a very very interesting question i think part of it goes back to this um this balance between rights and responsibilities that mm. we've tipped the balance towards rights and away from responsibilities uh, and both for men and for women perhaps in a way in 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 modern society um looking at it as an older person i feel that a, a lot of younger people say up to them you know, to me, somebody in their 40s is younger. Um, I think um, a lot of younger people seem to get stuck in a kind of um, early adulthood rut that they don't really want to get out of or know how to get out of. Or need to get or out of. Or need to get out of because they can, because, they, you know, if, you, if you're earning a decent living and you can keep the roof over your head and the food on the table, um then there isn't a, actually an awful lot of incentive but I, I think some of this is to do with um it's to do with um the shall we say the mainstream cultural value that we seem to subscribe to often without even thinking about it that that success is measured by what we have and what we get uh, rather than by what we give and what we offer Okay, so uh, from that I'm getting two things. One that uh, a consumer society, as consumer as our society yes. today is, is, isn't a good thing. Yeah. And the other is, is that actually uh, having too many opportunities at your disposal is actually detrimental, to potentially detrimental to your development because if you already sort of have everything in place, what's the point in... Yes. In struggling towards yes. something. Yes. Well, particularly if you're in a job that is really, you are, you're only doing it in order to earn a living. Yeah. So it, I think this brings us back to the old problem of, of where do I, what is my purpose and what is the meaning of, of my existence? And if, if and I, I feel that a lot of people do get stuck in this rut of, of sort of, chugging along mm. because they because they've got a job and they've got a, somewhere to live and but but there isn't an awful lot of incentive to to go for more than that um and but at the same time they're not really very happy either yeah absolutely and it's a kind of it's almost like a kind of anesthetic isn't it to, to, to kind of get up in the morning and do your nine to five and then come home get order your takeaway and and flick open Netflix or or your computer games or whatever it is that you do for entertainment. Yeah. Yeah, that, uh, I I can't but agree with 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 that. Uh, makes me makes me wonder. Uh, there's this saying, and I'm I'm not sure if I'm going to get this right, uh, but it's all over the internet. It's one of these things that. Hard times create, uh, bad times create hard men, hard men create good times, good times create weak men. Yes. That sort, that sort of idea. Yes. yes, And I think we're definitely in that stage now where we have a tremendous amount of, shall we say, weak men because there is no desperate need to become uh, better. But you mentioned something uh, that not only is interesting, but it, but it's actually basically one of the main themes of this podcast you mentioned the the, the word meaning mm. Uh, mm. and the lack of meaning that people experience uh, mm. what do you think is the reason for this why do, why do people seem to have trouble finding meaning in their lives because arguably not that long ago looking a couple of decades back 
uh, maybe uh, your mum and dad ran a family business and mm. it was always implied that uh, you were going to go on and carry on uh, doing that business or your father was a doctor or a lawyer and it was just Mm. It, it was just obvious you were going to be the next generation of the person to do that. Yes. And uh, from what I understand, uh, listening to people speak of, of that generation is that they're actually fairly happy. Mm. You know, uh, how is it that they were happy at that stage? And how is it that we're not happy now if we have more choice than we did have before? Where does the meaning lie? That's very interesting. Um, I, I, you're right that it's a, it seems like a paradox that people of let's say my parents and grandparents generation uh, had to sort of knuckle under and do things um, simply because they had to feed their families well as, as people do today but but it was it was a harder struggle my grandparents for example lived through two world wars and the depression yes um, and my fa my grandfather lost his profession because he, he made handmade shoes Mm. So he had to completely sort of, uh, he ended up sweeping the roads for a long time. But I, I think there are, if I think back to my grandparents' uh, generation and my dad's, because he was almost old enough to be my grandfather, um, I think there were, the, first of all, they, they took, even if they didn't particularly enjoy their work as such, um, they still took pride in it and did it to the best of their ability. And there were standards that they held themselves to. Yes. Uh, which, which, is, which is a source of satisfaction, even if you don't particularly agree, you know, even if you're not particularly identifying with the profession itself. And the other thing that I think was very important was that uh, they, they, had, uh, they had meaning outside their working life. Um, my my um, grandparents were both uh, strong believing Christians, and uh, they attended church, and they um, they also were quite musical. So they they used to take part in live music events. That's how my mother became a singer. Mm -hmm. And um, and my father, um, although he took on the uh, what was for his purposes the burden of the family business. He, he, he used to spend his free time and quite a lot of his money traveling, buying books, um, following the arts. So he found his meaning outside his work or partly outside his work in the arts. Mm -hmm. So I think that there are, there are values that, or should we say that non-material values that can bring a lot of meaning to your life, even if your job isn't particularly inspiring. Which makes sense to me. The question then becomes, as far as I'm concerned, is uh, because meaning is, uh, was and always will be an important part, if not one of the most integral parts of your life, Yes. Uh, they used to be found in the activities, as you mentioned. Do you think meaning is to be found in the same sort of uh, activities, lifestyle today, or should, should people approach finding meaning in a different way based on the different life that people lead today with access to technology and everything being an arm's reach away you know you do yeah with, without very little effort you can get just about anything yeah i think i think that the the challenge today is that we have communication technology on a level we've never had in human history and yet and yet the depth of communication is quite poor because, we, because it's shallow, yeah. yes, it's shallow, and um, I think that one of the ways that we can we can look for and find meaning today um, is by is by thinking of what we have to offer and maybe reaching out to other people. There are there are all sorts of things that we can do, um, even if it's just being a good neighbour to somebody elderly. Uh, you know, showing an interest in, in disabled people or uh, supporting a charity, but perhaps not just through money, but through some kind of activity mm. um, and, and taking part in that way. And um, even online, I think it's possible to have a meaningful level of communication with people if you're following a shared purpose. Mm -hmm. 
especially if it's for the benefit of someone else. Yeah. And I, I think that is, I think meaning, meaning isn't just found, it's also created yes. through, through relationships and through interest. Uh, and um, I think that's probably one of the things that our uh, education system hasn't been so good at doing uh, recently. Uh, because it's become very preoccupied with measurable results in exams and in attainment, but perhaps less concerned with with those deeper issues. I think in, when I went to school, um, there was still a, a, an intrinsic value in what we learned. So, that, for example, if, if you enjoyed literature, as I did, or if you enjoyed art, that was seen as having a value in itself, irrespective of the grades you achieved. Yes. Um, which I think is kind of slightly gone by the wayside now. Yep, again, I, I can't but agree. Uh, on our podcast, the one thing that we do like to do is bring it back to the individual. So if I may, uh, mm -hmm. on, a, on a personal level, did you always know how to find uh, some sort of meaning in your life? Is it something that you had to strive and struggle towards in order to get... Uh, or were you always aware that there is some sort of deeper meaning? Um, I think I've always been I've always been quite a kind of, a kind of reflective, introspective kind of person, even as a child. I mean, to the point of nerdy, let's be mm -hmm. honest. Uh, but um, I think uh, it's a bit of both. I mean, I think I always knew it was there, and uh, but I had a good example from my family in mm -hmm. the sense that my my parents and my grandparents um, were very keen to to sort of cultivate interests that, mm. that you could pursue regardless of where you were or what you were doing or even of money. I mean, you can you know, even if you don't have a lot of money, you can join a public library yeah. or you can buy books from a charity shop. Um, and you can you can share books with other people and you know like things like that are yeah. very interesting. You can depending on where you are, it isn't all that difficult to go to events where there's live music, which yeah. I think is another source of great meaning and, and pleasure in life. Or uh, every town has some kind of art gallery, and the arts are supported in those countries yeah. in some way. So I think. It's, it's a question of, of looking into yourself a little bit and thinking, well, you know, what, what do I find uplifting? What, what inspires me? Mm -hmm. You know, and what can I do to cultivate that and maybe pass it on to other people? Some people uh, nowadays are, uh, are really getting into gardening and allotments and growing their own food. And that's something that is a huge source of joy to people. Yeah. Um, you know, community gardening and, and that kind of thing. So that there's always something that you can do um, in your local community that, that can add something to your life and hopefully put something back into the community. Because I do believe very strongly that meaning and purpose come from what we give as well as from what we get. You mentioned meaning and purpose, so, mm. so that you know signifies some sort of difference between the two, although I think they're very similar things. Yes. What would be the difference between meaning and purpose in life? Well, I think that it, for me, in order to have a meaning, mm. in order to have meaning in my life, uh, I, I need to feel that I'm working towards some kind of purpose or goal. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, I, Because I feel that growth... Uh, that sense of personal growth also brings meaning yeah. and develops meaning. And uh, for me, I, I mentioned earlier uh, that lifelong learning is important to me. Um, so I, I do try to do courses and, uh, and read a lot and, 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 and think about how I might develop as a person. Yeah. Um, you know, and... and uh, I don't feel that that's age restricted. You know, as long as you've got as long as you've got breath in your body, you can be learning something new. I think. Yeah, well, that's a that's a very good attitude to take. Mm. I'm going to mention a very personal conversation I had with a friend of mine recently, whom I won't mention by name, who was uh, basically suicidal and on the verge of committing suicide. He actually had his note written out to his parents and everything and uh, mm. he, he, he 
standing, he was standing on the train tracks and, you know, he was, he was almost done. Uh, and, and somehow he bounced back because, uh, he, he did in some respect find something, some little spark, some little glimmer of hope, something to cling on to. Uh, I'm going to use this as a segue into, into a different, into a similar question. How do you go about finding meaning in your life when you think that there is none? So when you're absolutely rock bottom. When you're rock bottom and you can't seem to find anything worth fighting for, where and how do you go about finding some sort of meaning? Well, I can only answer that question. It was, you know, you, you mentioned a very personal uh, life story there. Uh, I can only, I can only answer that question on a very personal level. I have been at rock bottom. Mm. Uh, I have been in a state of mind where I felt that I didn't want to go on or I couldn't go on more than once actually. Um, uh, and um, the, the, um, what brought me out of it or what started to bring me out of it was the thought of the people I love. Yeah. You know, what, what, um, if I wasn't here, mm. who would suffer? Mm. or who would suffer less if I stay yes so I think that's you know it's because we're not we're not just individuals we are also a network of relationships and and I think this is where this is where what we give a lot to other people without realizing it just by being here just by being a person Mm. you know just by just by opening a door for somebody who's carrying a heavy box. Yes. It might sound silly, but just you know, just saying hello to a person who lives alone and hasn't spoken to somebody for three days. Absolutely. You know, um, and because we don't, we don't. Also, it's <clears throat> it's a trick of the mind that when we're at rock bottom and we think that we have nothing le- else left to live for we think that that is our personal failure and that we're the only person in that moment who's going through that. And it isn't true. You know, unfortunately, there are countless thousands of people in the world at this moment who feel that their lives are not worth living, whether it's, you know, whether they have reason, practical reason to believe that or not. And all I can say is that what got me out of it was, was to take, was to shift the focus away from my pain towards the people I care about who who I still had something to give to. That's a very strong message there, so thank you for mentioning that. If we could for a moment bring this back to to, uh, to your books uh, and, to, and to all of your writing, mm. uh, what can we be expecting to to read in the near future? What are you working on, and what have you worked on so far that would relate to what we've spoken about? Um, well, uh, as I mentioned, I've got a couple of uh, crime fiction novels out. Uh, well, one's out and one's about to come out, and I, I do have plans to continue that series. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm very concerned in my crime fiction with. Um, as I say, the um, the sort of historical aspect of the of of the story and how we are shaped by the era we live in. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that's one thing. Uh, but at the moment, uh, I'm mainly at the moment working on my uh, wizard series, and um, it's as I as I mentioned earlier, it's urban fantasy, um, and I'm concerned there with um, with modern issues like genetic engineering, transhumanism, mm-hmm. um, I'm concerned with um, powerful institutions. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm very interested in how uh, democracy is being eroded by uh, oligarchy and corruption, and by the by the sheer volume of money uh, that in the world that isn't controlled or regulated anymore yeah. uh, because that completely undermines uh, civil society really um, and so I'm very concerned with all of that 
and I uh, and because I'm writing in urban fantasy, I I couch that in terms of of, of sorcery and magic, mm-hmm. um, and I equate uh, some of the institutions that we experience in mm-hmm. everyday life as a uh, as evidence of sorcery. And, I, and and funnily enough, that isn't new. Um, there the the it, when the stock market was first created in Holland um, at the time of the Dutch East India Company, it was compared to a kind of sorcery even then, which is kind of interesting. Oh, even, yes, very early on. Could you elaborate on that a little mm. bit for well, our listeners? That sounds very interesting. Um, I, I'm not sure if I can remember the name of the author, but around the time, what used to happen uh, historically is that merchants became bankers because they used to exchange money as they traveled around Europe, let's say, um, and did their trade. So they would set exchange rates between all these many, many different currencies that were around at the time. And eventually, because trade was becoming global with the uh, the Dutch East India Company and going to the the discovery of the Americas and so forth, um, it became necessary for there to be a, a more a smoother way of doing this so merchant banks were created and um and in, indeed the first bankers in europe were the knights templar mm. uh, which is quite interesting and they they um they they had their own sort of internal and because they weren't allowed to borrow and or to lend money because it was considered to be against god's law yes. to lend money at interest they got round this by becoming landowners. Um, but then eventually, um, actual money had to be exchanged at fixed exchange rates. And, it, and then it started off uh, at various sort of uh, way stations in Europe, like Geneva and Amsterdam and, and then London, of course, and so on. And, um, but eventually, a stock market was created in Amsterdam, I think the first one was. And um, a, a guy whose name now escapes me because you've just asked me what he was, <laughs> uh, 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 wrote a book called Confusion of Confusions, yes. in which he likened the functioning of the finance market to a, a kind of sorcery. Okay. Um, that it, it, it operated according to secret sort of laws of magic. And uh, I think that if we look at the world of finance today, we can see that there is you know huge amounts of black money in the sense of money vast amounts of money being funneled out of national economies into secret bank accounts in the cayman islands or in Liechtenstein or wherever and uh, so all this kind of thing fascinates me Mm. uh, because i do believe that our institutions are a reflection of ourselves and um you know, because who else would they reflect except the people who, who create them? And um, so I'm, I'm very, very interested in this. And I'm also very interested in ancient secret societies mm. and how they operated and how they um, sort of concentrated power um, in their hands and, and, and in some ways perhaps continue to do so. So, so that's where my urban fantasy uh, comes in. It, it, it is fantasy but it's based on history. Well, yeah, there you have it, ladies and gentlemen. Mm. That's a, it's going to be a fascinating read. Uh, and if I may, the books that are now available, could you, would you mind mentioning what those are and uh, where we can find them? Yes, of course. Uh, well, the, the crime novel that is already out is called The Tainted Vintage, mm-hmm. and uh, you'll find that under my named Claire Blanchard uh, on Amazon or on the website of Fahrenheit Press. Mm-hmm. Um, I, uh, I also have the opportunity to sign up to my newsletter on my website, which is claireblanchard.com. Mm-hmm. And so that's a good way to sign up for news. And uh, I also do offer free, free books uh, or, or, or stories. Um, and um, I have a, a short novella out, which is called Spellbound. Yep. And Spellbound is the, the sort of, I would say, teaser novella for the Wizard series, and that is available free. So if you go onto my website, you'll find out where you can download that for nothing. 
Brilliant. And uh, and hopefully uh, that will whet your appetite for uh, the the full length novel coming out in the autumn, which is called Wizard Ring. Well, based on what I've heard so far, that's definitely going to be on my reading list. Thank you. <laughs> uh, now, ladies and gents, as usual, as you've been, as you've come accustomed to, I've got a few questions that I like to finish off all my interviews with, uh, no matter whom I'm speaking to. So the first of this would, these questions would be, how would you most accurately describe yourself in one sentence? Okay, well, uh, perhaps I would describe myself as a, um, a failed corporate animal turned increasingly successful mm -hmm. writer. That's I mean, I, I wasn't a complete failure in, in, in corporate life, but, I, but oddly enough, I felt a bit of a failure because I'd missed my meaning and purpose. So we're getting back to meaning and purpose. Yeah, absolutely. Coming back to the podcast. So, so <clears throat> phrasing that a different way, you have to you have to get away from the things that uh, that grind you down and truly catch up with your purpose. Otherwise, it yes. will catch up with you. And yes, uh, I mean, and one of, another way I would put it is that a successful career can be the death of many a, a successful life's work. You know that sometimes you're so busy climbing ladders that you forget to do the work that you're really here to do. Um, and, uh, you know, some, I remember listening to a really rather sad interview with the actor Sir Richard Burton, mm -hmm. who was a wonderful actor. I'm aware of it. Uh, but he said, he said really that what he should have done is been a, a taught English literature at a university. I, I recall that they, they allowed him to do that very briefly. Uh, yeah. But uh, yes, anyway, well, yes. I digress. But I, 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 I take that point, you know, because he, he felt, although he was hugely successful, he felt he'd missed his true vocation, which is a tragedy, you know. So put in other words, always follow your true passions. Yes, if you can, if you although can. it may mean doing a day job. Yes, absolutely. Mm. When you say if you can, uh, what, what does that mean exactly? Because it seems like you can always try and pursue your, mm. your, your goals and dreams. You certainly can, and, you, and I think you should. But I think, I, think um, I remember listening to something by Jordan Peterson, <clears throat> where he said that you, if, you, if, you're, <laughs> if, you're, if you're creative, you have to accept that there may be a, a conflict between how you earn your living and how you find your meaning and purpose. Yes. You know, realistically speaking, we're not all going to be Stephen King mm. or John le Carre yeah. as writers, for example, to use my own area. Um, you know, that it, it isn't, it, you can't take it as a given that you will be able to earn your living at your passion. And if, if you can't earn your living at your passion, you shouldn't see that as a failure. I suppose that's one of the things is it's missing the point sometimes by thinking if it's not the page if it's not the thing that gets you the paycheck it's yes. not the thing to make you happy. No, no. I also know a lady um, who is an artist and a painter, mm. and she she said that she wrestled for a number of years in her middle years with the realization that was growing in her. That although she loved her painting, her real calling was to teach art, mm -hmm. or to teach through art, and um, and you know it, she struggled with that. There's a phrase that uh, that really stuck with me, a paraphrase again from uh, Jordan hashtag trigger warning Peterson, uh, who mentioned that uh, you should be very careful what you aim at and aim at it very specifically. So. Mm. with the lady you mentioned it seems like she was in the right area which is yes. art but she didn't quite define her terms well enough but got there eventually which is probably, yes. probably the most crucial thing yes or maybe just grew as a person to the point where what she was doing before wasn't satisfying enough yeah. and I think you know because she she felt that she needed to teach through her art and again we're back to meaning because finding meaning through giving Yes. To, to other people which would also then follow that in order to actually find meaning in your life even if even even 
let's you know have a bit of a thought experiment let's say you're 10 years old and you know exactly what your life's calling is mm. uh nonetheless uh if you're not productive and you don't do something with your life on a day-to-day -day, you probably won't achieve it because it, it, it won't just fall in your lap so you have mm. to you have to take steps to get the meaning that, 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 that you require out of your life mm. uh, coming up to the to, to the next question uh, what is the greatest thing that you'd like to accomplish within the next five years if you had to pick um, one I think um, in the next five years I would like to um, expand my readership um, and hopefully have the feeling that my writing interests, entertains, and dare I hope even inspires uh, some people. Um, I would like to be able to focus on my writing to the point where I can, where I can perhaps dig a little deeper uh, in what I write about. Mm -hmm. um, um, when I say dig a little deeper, I mean perhaps uh, take more time over my research and also. Um, I, when it comes to meaning and purpose, dig a little deeper in my writing. But I, but I, but I think that it's basically an expansion of what I've already started doing. I would say over the next five years. So you're well, well on the right track. Hopefully, uh, hopefully. Definitely sounds that way. That's brilliant. Mm. Uh, coming up to the next question, only two more to go. Mm. Uh, is there a moment in your past that made the most impact on the person you are today and that can either be in your personal or professional life uh, whichever one you like uh, I think if I had to pick one uh, the, the the single most formative experience in my young life was the death of my father when I was 14 um, I not just because he was my dad but also because uh, we we had a huge rapport as human beings. So his death for me was a real sort of personal catastrophe. Uh, but it was also, um, I've, I've often felt that looking back on that time, I was 14 years old, that um, in a way you, you don't start to grow old until the day one of your parents dies. Uh, because until well, as long as your parents are alive, you're still somebody's kid, mm -hmm. even if you're 60, mm -hmm. if, if that makes sense. But but when your when your father or your mother dies when you're young, you it's like you have to step up to the plate of the next generation, and you know because you've experienced it that you yourself are going to die one day, yes. and that really is a total game changer. Yes, uh, because. It, because it, I can remember, even at that age, thinking, oh, well, if I'm going to die, and I know I'm going to die, that, that makes a big difference to what I want to invest my time and energy in. So would it be fair to say that it served as a catalyst to your productivity, in a way? Yes, definitely. It was an extremely painful event, but it, but it also really set me off on the path to looking for meaning mm. actually Absolutely. deep stuff today yes folks. Deep. deep stuff today indeed. well you asked so i said well, yeah no that's that's what we're all about uh so i'd like to finish on one more question uh what was the one most crucial thing or what is the one most crucial thing you do to ensure that you have a productive day um or do you have one? Uh, I think so. I, I, what I try to do is to, when I get up in the morning, um, is, to, is to think about my day and think about what's really important to me in that day. Yeah. I think it's very, it's very easy to just step out onto the treadmill with your cup of coffee in your hand and not think yeah. about, you know, what am I really about today? And... and um, it, paradoxically, I think I find I'm more productive when I when I take time to stop every now and again, even throughout the day. Um, 
I, I've learned that if, you, if you're constantly trying to be super efficient, you're probably not being very effective. You know, because efficiency isn't the same thing. Yes. It's not about how many things I can pack into today on, yes. and get off my tick list. It's also to do with, you know, am I really pursuing my purpose today? So even if I've got a very long working day, which mm -hmm. I do in my job, I try to have, I try to say, I try to identify which slots of time in that day I'm going to devote to what I call my meaning stuff, you know, my really important stuff. And even one hour can be an incredibly productive time if you know that that's what you are going to do with it. Absolutely. All right. Well, ladies and gentlemen, very deep stuff today with Dr. Claire Blanchard. Thank you very much for coming. Well, it's been a real pleasure. Thank you very much, Tom. Thank you.